0: Policymakers often use economic evaluation to weigh the costs and benefits of health policies, and quantifying and comparing the effects of policies and interventions for combating COVID-19 could help inform decision-making, even when information is incomplete. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ankur Padya, an Associate Professor of Health Decision Science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Padja has co-authored a perspective article about using economic evaluation in the response to COVID-19. Dr. Padja, could you start by explaining what economic evaluation entails for health-related policies? What sorts of factors are considered in this type of analysis?
1: Sure, my pleasure. In its most primitive form, an economic evaluation is a pros and cons list with weights. And so if you're thinking about making a decision in everyday life, like whether to walk to work or take the train, you might consider the pros and cons of those two approaches or alternatives, if you will. And some of these factors can be probabilistic, like the chance it might rain. And then you have to think about how you weigh the consequences. How annoyed would I be if I got wet on my walk to work? How much does the train cost? Different factors that you care about, you place weights on them, you think about the probabilities and you make a choice. When it comes to health decision-making, whether it's health policy or clinical decision in the context of COVID, we were writing this article in the context more around policies. You would think about the options available to you as the decision-maker, whether that's at the federal level, state level, healthcare system level, hospital level. It could come down to an individual. You think about the options available to you. You think about what you care about, what are your objectives, Parenthesis S. So we want to minimize cases. We don't want to infringe on liberty too much. We want to think about equity. These are all considerations the decision maker might have. And we care about costs, maybe because we have a limited budget. And so the costs, the economic costs of pursuing one of these strategies versus another uh, will also come into play. What economic evaluation does is a set of methods to flesh out this pros and cons list and apply some weights to help a decision maker make these choices. No decision maker has to follow the recommendation from an economic analysis. We try to address this in the article that there are going to be known unknowns, if you will, and that's part of the dashboard that hopefully informs the decision-making process and a good economic evaluation will be transparent about what is included, what is not, what's getting weight, what is not, what are those weights, and we hope that this is a systematic, rational, transparent way to think about complex problems like responses to COVID-19.
0: So, in your perspective article, you say that when it comes to COVID related policies and interventions, the amount and quality of the evidence available on the costs and benefits varies quite a bit. So, could you give some examples of areas where the evidence is strong and some where the evidence is weaker?
1: Sure. So, when it comes to COVID vaccines, especially the ones that have been approved and are out there being used, the evidence for their effectiveness comes from randomized control trials and their adverse events as well. So, we have a fairly good understanding of how effective and safe these vaccines are. Not complete understanding by any stretch, but fairly good understanding compared to, let's say, the impacts of HVAC ventilation improvements for indoor spaces on transmission. We might have a sense that improving ventilation will be helpful for reducing transmission, but we don't have the randomized control trials like we do for the vaccines. So, thinking about the strength of evidence is a key component to an economic evaluation. Again, being clear about what is known and what is not known. And economic evaluations can vary with respect to how quantitatively and explicitly this uncertainty is handled. There's a very nerdy, mathy approach to quantifying the value of information. This is stuff that health economists like me, nerds like me like to think about how valuable would learning something more about, let's say the HVAC upgrades, how valuable would that be to our decision-making process? There's a whole math and a whole subfield behind this, but I think even a qualitative assessment, even just acknowledging that there could be some uncertainties in certain inputs into our decision model, if you will, and what those uncertainties are and what direction they might go. So if we're unsure about a behavioral response to financial incentives to vaccines, we can speculate or at least propose some directions in terms of this might reduce uptake later on if folks view the incentives as coercive. You could at least qualitatively put that into your dashboard to go along with your quantitative assessments in the economic evaluation.
0: So you also say in your article that whether economic evaluations consider all societal effects or just effects on the healthcare system is going to influence how the benefits and costs are assessed. How have questions about broader trade-offs factored into discussions about COVID-19 interventions?
1: You certainly see it in the conversations happening in social media, in the editorial pages of different medical journals, on the news, sound bites, podcasts. Folks will bring up arguments related to autonomy, freedom, equity. That are hard to quantify and capture and put into an economic evaluation. Now, there are some economic evaluations that have tried to do this, but it's difficult. It's hard to put a number on some of those factors as opposed to the length of life meaning mortality benefits, the quality of life, meaning morbidity benefits and costs. Those are the traditional dimensions that are included in let's say a cost effectiveness analysis. And those we've been putting numbers to for 40 years. If not longer, we have a good sense of how to quantify and collapse those different dimensions into a single number to then weigh in an economic evaluation. What we write in the perspective article is that depending on the perspective and a societal perspective is probably very relevant when thinking about COVID-19 policymaking, All impacts that could matter should be at least considered and put into a table of results. So if there's a policy that will infringe on autonomy or liberty, and that's important to the stakeholders, that should at least be acknowledged. We should not ignore outcomes just because you don't have perfect or even any data on them. And our recommendation is to be transparent so that decision makers can consider every factor that might be relevant, whether it can be quantified and aggregated and collapsed into a single number or not.
0: So this may be getting into the nerdy territory that you were talking about, but how do economic evaluations account for the uncertainty surrounding the effects of many policies, including how various interventions might work in combination?
1: So unlike traditional fields, uh, let's say in public health and medicine, We don't use p-values or hypothesis testing and economic evaluation. It really is oriented around a decision that has to be made. And so there's no decision rule like, well, if the p-value is less than 0.05, we'll go with option A, but if it's greater than 0.05, we'll stay with the status quo. Instead, we think about the uncertainty underlying each input into the decision models. You can imagine a mathematical model has several inputs going into it, like vaccine effectiveness, vaccine adverse event rates vaccine uptake, in each of these estimates is going to be a number that has a point estimate, and each of those point estimates might also come with a distribution around it. Imagine bell curves or skewed probability distributions around each input. What we do in economic evaluation is propagate that uncertainty through the model, maybe by running thousands or even millions of model runs, And we get a sense of which option is optimal or recommended what percent of the time through those millions of runs, so it could be the case that option A is the preferred option. When you crunch the numbers and perform the math of the economic evaluation 80% of the time in these probabilistic sensitivity analyses is what we call it in these iterations where we're propagating the uncertainty through. And then option B is optimal 10% of the time and C, D and F are the other 10%. And there's no decision rule there on how to interpret that. That's up to the decision-maker. How comfortable do you feel with an 80% chance of being right? And the nerdy path forward is if you don't feel comfortable with that 80%, what that suggests is there's value in reducing that uncertainty, meaning conducting more studies, gaining more information around those uncertain inputs, especially those that are just driving the decision, the recommendation. And that's where we should spend our money. So it might be that we'll go with option A, but we're also gonna study those uncertain inputs to learn more about it. And so that we feel more confident with our decision because 80% is not high enough. That's a subjective case by case decision maker by decision maker judgment, but it's quantitative. You You might read this in every research article in the discussion paragraph, you might read more research is needed on X, Y, and Z. In economic evaluation, we have these nerdy methods that say, wait a second, we can quantify that. We can tell you when that uncertainty matters, when that information, when those new studies, when that new research is needed. Again, I think a nice feature of the methods is that we really try to quantify what can be quantified to make more systematic and transparent assessments.
0: Finally, what steps can investigators and policymakers take to Begin more explicitly using economic analysis to support COVID related decisions? And then, how should those efforts be communicated to the public?
1: So, we have a table in the article that walks through different forms of economic evaluation that vary in what components they're considering, all the way from a very basic just cost analysis. So, the only thing we're thinking about is cost to a comparative effectiveness analysis, where the only outcomes we care about are related to effectiveness, often just one measure, to a cost consequence, to a cost. Effectiveness to benefit costs. Now we're aggregating more of the outcomes we might care about. For example, length of life and quality of life can be collapsed into a single number, like the quality adjusted life here, known as the quality. And then at the end of the table, we have newer methods like distributional cost effectiveness analysis that actually explicitly weights the distribution of outcomes, the distribution of health impacts and cost impacts across the population. And so if there are disparities that we care about, we will put explicit weight on them to formally consider whether a intervention that costs a lot of money, but reduces an important health disparity is recommended or not. And what you need there is a societal weight on equity. So there are different options to walk through the process. And what I would hope that decision-makers, or let's say lay audience kind of take away is, we do this all the time. When we have complex decisions, we think about the different components. If we're really going through a rigorous decision-making process, If I can, let me use an analogy with professional sports. There's a analytics revolution in professional sports like baseball, football, soccer. I'll pick baseball because there was a famous book called Moneyball. And there's a movie starring Brad Pitt called Moneyball, where They started to use data more and analytics more to make their decisions. And now every team in baseball will use analytics where they collapse different numbers, like how many doubles a player's hits, how many home runs, how many stolen bases. Defense could be quantified. What's the range factor? What's their error? It could collapse it all into one number. And you could use that one number to at least get a sense of sorting through hundreds of players who are the best players in this case in baseball. It could be soccer or football or basketball or whatever sport you care about. And then you can deviate from that quantification when making your decisions because there's some components to the player and their skill and their leadership and intangibles that you cannot quantify. I think in healthcare and health policy, we're doing similar things with economic evaluation. That table that we show in the article shows different ways of collapsing different components like mortality benefits, morbidity benefits, cost benefits. It impacts on equity into single numbers and that can give us an initial ranking based on the numbers of options that are available to us. And then decision makers can deviate if they don't trust the weights that went into that process, if there's another consideration that cannot be quantified like the dignity of the patient or some other liberty that you cannot quantify put in and that's fine, but I think the quantification helps. And so If thinking about Moneyball is a useful example, every team in baseball now considers analytics, but they're allowed to deviate to make their decisions. I think in healthcare and health policy, especially when it comes to COVID, let's not shy away from the numbers and the analytics that collapse different dimensions into single numbers that help us think. And then while recognizing we're allowed to deviate from those recommendations if we can make a reasonable argument to do so.
0: Thank you, Dr. Pandya.